Welcome to the See Me Now podcast. I'm Kelsey Coleman here with my co-host, Caitlin Birdsall, and we are joined today by CMU Associate Professor of Biology, Johanna Varner. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, you had your, uh, you got your bachelor's degree in biology. Your master's, um, I believe, was at uh, MIT. MIT um, in biomedical engineering. Yes. And so you have done um, a lot in your career and kind of bounced around a bit um, before and after um, getting your your bachelor's and your PhD. And I want to talk about how you got to the point you are today, which is one of the most influential scientists in the United States. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it definitely was not a linear path. So when I when I started off going to college, I knew that I was really interested in science, but I wasn't really sure what kind of science I wanted to pursue. I thought maybe that I wanted to study astrophysics or neuroscience, not sure which. Um, And I was sort of quickly decided that physics was not going to be a great fit for me. I just wasn't as excited about it as I thought that I would be when I got into the classroom. Um, So I actually declared myself a neuroscience major when I started, and about a year and a half into that program, decided that I wasn't that excited about the way that the program was structured. It wasn't going to allow me to focus on the classes that I was most interested in. And so I switched to being a biology major. Um, And biomedical engineering wasn't actually a major at MIT at that time. So instead, I did it as a minor. Um, I found that really exciting and and very interesting. And so I stayed to do a one-year master's program there. Um, My thesis on my master's program was growing uh, neuron cells, actually, in these tiny channels uh, in a three-dimensional medium and trying to apply very carefully different kinds of signals to see how the cells responded. And the really long-term goal of that research was to potentially be able to regenerate brain cells that had degenerated in certain kinds of neurodegenerative diseases. Um, But I, I had kind of a hard time in that line of research because it, the potential applications where it would actually make the world a better place were 10, 15, 20 years out from what I was doing in a cold, dark room by myself with a microscope. And so um, I ended up taking a little bit of time off. Um, When I finished my master's, I moved back in with my parents. I worked at a bakery and I um, went and traveled the world a little bit and gained a little bit of, you know, worldly perspective working on farms. And during that time, I learned a little bit more about different kinds of interactions that occur in the natural world. Um, And this whole sort of field of ecology being the study of biology of how organisms interact with their environment. And I found that that was actually a really good fit for me because it allowed me to both ask, you know, biological questions and, and be involved in biological science, but it was much more observable. And the impacts of the kinds of research that you were doing were a little bit more tangible. So when I came back from my travels, I ended up getting connected with a lab at University of Utah, where I grew up, um, that studied uh, pikas, which are these small mammals that I now study. And um, I ended up working in that lab for a couple of years on a different project for uh, studying hantavirus in deer mice. I found that I had a really great relationship with my advisor. And I think that that's one of the most important things that, that you know students should consider in going to graduate school is what your relationship with your mentor is like. Um, And so I decided to stay and do my PhD on PICAs. I did that and I came here in January of 2016, shortly after defending. 
I love that because like you said, it was not a linear path. And I think for a lot of people, you know, trying to, you know, you go to university or you don't and you try to kind of just figure out your passion in life and you're not always necessarily going to get there at the same time your peers do. And I love that you went through this whole process and ended up that pikas were your passion. Yeah. And, you know, I, pikas had always been kind of a personal passion for me. I first discovered them on some nature TV shows sometime in college, and I became sort of obsessed with going hiking. But it honestly had not occurred to me ever until, you know, I was probably 24. I read a newspaper article in which they interviewed this woman at University of Utah about her research that she had done on pikas. And in, until that point, it honestly just had not occurred to me that scientists study animals like pikas outside in nature. Um, I had just become so focused and so narrowly trained, I think, in thinking about science questions at the scale of cells or, you know, maybe maybe tissues at the most zoomed out level, but not whole organisms interacting with nature. So I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about a recent accolade that you received. So you were part of the world's largest ever collection of statues of women to exist in one place. Yes. And it was first featured. It's 120 life-size statues. They're bright orange. They were down in Texas, and then they were eventually moved to the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. And I just hoped you could maybe talk to us about how did this come about and what did it mean to you? Yes, absolutely. It's a really unusual thing, and I think a lot of people are not really even sure kind of how to how to even talk about it. Um, but it's this really um, fantastic program um, that's funded by this woman named Lida Hill, who is a philanthropist from Texas. And she decided that she was going to spend, you know, give a lot of money to activate a culture shift among young women and particularly kind of targeted at middle school girls to try and help inspire the next generation of scientists and help young girls be able to see that you know, no matter what they look like, there's a scientist who looks like them. And so they sent out a national call um, for for applicants and for a program called If Then, and for women in different kinds of STEM careers to apply to be what they called ambassadors. And um, I was selected as an If Then ambassador. Um, I'm not really sure what I thought was going to happen there, but I definitely did not expect to be a life-size 3D printed statue at the Smithsonian. That is would never have been something that I expected for myself in my wildest dreams. Um, but they ended up getting us all together doing a bunch of media production and we got a lot of training in in sort of how to reach young women where they are in places like social media and the kinds of tv shows that they that they consume and and you know all of the different kinds of media that they consume Uh, and as part of that one of the things that they did was they did a 3d body scan of all of us uh, in our sort of clothes and props uh, that would be consistent with our jobs and in science. And um, they 3D printed 120 life-size statues of female scientists. So as you mentioned, they were originally in Dallas. And then in March of 2022, they moved to the Smithsonian for Women's History Month, um, slash they were calling it Women's Futures Month, um, to sort of look more kind of future-facing. And um, it was really powerful. It actually was much more powerful than I would have expected. When I first saw that they were going to be orange, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to look like a Happy Meals toy from the 80s. (laughs) But I feel like actually the fact that they were bright orange was really a 
it's really a signal to people passing by that there's a thing in here that you should come check out. Whereas I think that if they had just been sort of regular statue colors, people would just kind of walk on by because there's so many statues in Washington, D.C. And so, you know, being drawn into this garden with 120 bright orange statues and then discovering that that not only are they bright orange statues, but they're actually of female scientists, technologists, engineers, um, innovators across all walks of STEM from fashion and sports to ecology to medicine um, to, you know, different kinds of media production sciences. Um, they're all over the place there. And, you know, you name a career, it's represented in those statues. And no matter what you look like, they've selected a woman who probably looks like you. So I would assume going into this field, it sounds like you've just had a passion for science from a young age, and it probably wasn't necessarily you entered saying, I'm a woman, I'm going to enter the STEM field to make a difference in that capacity. But obviously through your work and your research and what you've been producing has garnered attention to that. So what do you think is um, valuable for younger, whether they're elementary, middle, high school, or even college-aged students that are particularly women looking at entering into the STEM field? What would you tell them or what do you think it's important for them to know? Yeah, I think, I mean... I, I tend to actually be sometimes maybe a little bit delusional in my thinking that everything is possible <laughs> and that, that you know, anybody can do anything. And, and certainly there are higher societal barriers for certain, you know, humans to to be successful in certain fields. Um, I think that the most important thing to me is, is that... Um, is help you know telling people the the importance of of finding an advocate and a mentor um, to help kind of show you the path, uh, and I've been really fortunate in that respect. Um, starting with my mother, who is a physician um, and who was a trailblazer in many respects, who I think set a really great example for me um, in terms of following your passions. And it's okay if you change fields. She actually was an English major to begin with, and then sort of had a quarter life reorientation towards medicine, um, just as I did. And I've been really fortunate to have a lot of really awesome other female mentors along the way who have really helped teach me how to advocate for myself in addition to advocating for me. Um, I think that the what the if then folks would say, you know, that they're really trying to do and I think are being very effective at is also just showing representation. So there's kind of a classic study in which, you know, you could go around and ask people to name a scientist and very few people can name anybody other than Albert Einstein um, and let alone a living scientist, let alone a female scientist. Um, and in, you know, there's kind of a classic developmental psychology test where you ask ask a student to, you know, a kid to draw a picture of a scientist and they draw a white man in a lab coat. Um, and, you know, that comes from somewhere. It comes from stereotypes of how scientists are portrayed in the media. It comes from, you know, the kinds of scientists that people know. And so I think that just sort of increasing that representation in those spaces um, can be really powerful so that, you know, any young woman can watch a, a show and say, oh my gosh, you know, that woman is a bear ecologist or she's a immunobiologist or she's a physicist and she looks just like me. Um, I could be that too. I can picture myself in that role. I feel like we've seen no matter what the industry is or the field, it's better when it's, it's diverse and there's more voices at the table from different points of view in the sciences and particularly, um, in field research, why is it important to have such representation? 
I think that that representation is important both for, you know, bringing those voices to the table, as you mentioned. I think that it also is important for sort of inspiring the people who are most passionate about those fields to be able to picture themselves in that field. You know, if if people who could potentially be really fantastic frog biologists or pica biologists or, um, you know, you name it in the field science, don't have an opportunity to see themselves in that field or don't have any help getting over the barriers, um, they're, you know, they're not going to be able to contribute to that, to that field in that, in that way. So, you know, I think that that representation is really important for helping those people who have a passion for and an aptitude for that line of work to be able to to be able to get in, you know, there's obviously other barriers that, um, you know, women face in field work more, um, acutely, I think, than men, um, barriers associated with safety in particular, being out by yourself in a remote, you know, wilderness space can be kind of scary. Um, you know, and I have, a a student who I'm supervising who just felt this very acutely actually last summer where there was some a homicide not far from her field site. And that was something that made her feel, you know, really, really uncertain and unsafe. And so I think that those are some things that um, that scientists who are female or scientists of color definitely face in stronger barriers um, than others. Yeah. And I, I think too, when, you think about these 120 female scientists that are the Smithsonian, how they're all so vastly different in not only their fields, but their backgrounds and how each and every one of you has been able to advance in that field and in that specific subject because of where you've been and what you've learned and your your history, essentially. Yeah. And one of the things that actually was, I thought was a really powerful thing about the exhibit um, is you're right, there's a tremendous amount of diversity in fields and in, you know, shapes and sizes and colors and and hairstyles and all of the different ways that humans can be different. They are all represented in that collection of women. Um, and yet when we are all presented as statues, the fact that we're all bright orange also makes us all kind of the same. And there's something really poetic, I think, and really beautiful about representing all of those people in that sort of sameness way in a physical, you know, visual sense. And then, you know, next to each statue, you can scan a QR code and you can pull up that person's a photograph of that person in action. Um, and, you know, it's just can be really powerful, I think, to be like, oh, my gosh, look at how different all these people look when you make them not orange. <laughs> so you talked about, you know, your journey from your bachelor's degree, your master's, traveling the world, getting your PhD. Then what brought you to CMU? I'm really curious to hear what was it about CMU that brought you here? And then maybe what was it about teaching that you decided to pursue being a professor? Yeah. So, you know, maybe I'll, I'll start with the teaching, which is that um, I discovered fairly early in my PhD work that I was loved I really loved working with pikas. I really loved the field work. Um, I did a lot of outreach work with, in particular, middle school kids, um, taking them to see the pikas and to make observations about the pikas. And 
um, really using PICAs as kind of a platform for talking with kids about local impacts of climate change and helping them understand that some of these changes are things that are happening in our backyard. It's not just about polar bears and ice caps. Um, And I realized about halfway through my PhD that while I loved doing the science, I actually wasn't that motivated by the questions. I was much more motivated by the fieldwork and by the extension of sort of sharing my research in a way that I felt really made a difference in the human interaction side of things. Um, because again, kind of compared to my my master's work in a cold dark room by myself, I was seeing like, you know, helping people to see the world a, a little bit differently in real time. And that was just really felt a lot more meaningful to me than um, some of the other aspects of science had been. So I I knew that I was definitely kind of orienting towards trying to pursue a career that involved communication, um, education in some space. I actually, I didn't think that it would take me to a place like CMU, um, but I was kind of excited about doing something in the space of, you know, mass media. I did a mass media fellowship where I worked at an NPR station for a summer um, producing radio clips. And I did a um, bunch of other different kinds of experiences that helped prepare me for science communication and science education and sort of informal science learning spaces like summer camps or museums. And um, I was kind of wrapping up my PhD when this position uh, for a faculty member here at CMU was listed, and they were looking for a mammal biologist who could teach mammalogy. And I had been teaching um, at University of Utah during my PhD. I really enjoyed it. Um, I liked Grand Junction. I knew a couple of folks here, and I knew that there were pikas nearby, um, and that it was, you know, the kind of town that I thought I would really enjoy living in. And so I thought I would apply. Um, And when I was offered the job, I had some sort of difficult choices to make because I hadn't really planned on coming here, but it was a really you know, great opportunity. And um, I didn't really have a plan. <laughs> my other my other plan was kind of a non-plan, which was that I was going to march in somewhere and ask somebody to make me a job, which may have worked, um, but it may not have. Um, and so I decided to come out here and give it a try. And and when I got here, I, I just really fell in love with the university, um, with the my colleagues in the department. We have a really great community and uh, with the students here. And one of the things that kind of surprised me that I, I I'm not sure why I had never thought of it this way, but I teach a lot of the biology 101 classes for non-majors and some other classes that a lot of non-biology majors take. And what I discovered is that actually teaching science to people who are not planning to become scientists is outreach (laughs) Um, in a way. And, you know, I don't mean that in a demeaning way, but it really is an opportunity to help to share what is biology, what is science, why is it relevant to your life, and you know what are some of the things that you might pay a little bit more attention to in your life as a non-scientist um, out there in the world. I love that you mentioned that because I'm a CMU grad, and when I came here, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. So I took quite a few different courses, and I took Biology 101 and our lab, and I still remember my faculty members, and it almost made me go down the path of biology because I was like, this is amazing. It was so cool. It was really interesting to me. I had always had a passion for animals, and originally I thought I was going to be a vet, figured out earlier on that was not for me, but I was like, maybe this could be the route. And there are times where I'm like, maybe I should have pursued biology. <laughs> I could be in a totally different profession and career right There's now. There's still I had. time. It's not too late. <laughs> you can still reach out to somebody randomly from a newspaper and tell them that you're not a biologist, but you'd like to become one. 
I'm telling you, it works. (laughs) I love that. Well, and you both know that CMU is, um, has a teacher scholar method. So that is your first primary role is teaching students like Caitlin about biology and the importance of science. But that scholarly method is also really important as well. And you've done a ton. I mean, we've highlighted a bunch of kind of what you've done already, but there's I want to go a little bit deeper because I think you studied uh, pikas and how they recolonized an area after a fire. Is that right? Yes. um, That was actually a surprise chapter of my PhD. So my PhD dissertation work was originally going to be looking at pikas living in this really unusual habitat at low elevations in the Columbia River Gorge, just outside of Portland in Oregon. And you know, at that time, we knew that pikas were there, but nobody really knew exactly how or why they were there because they were about 3,500 feet in elevation lower than where we would expect to find them based on our understanding of their preferences for temperature and snowpack and vegetation. And so I set off to do this and, and I set up some sites at these low elevations and then on nearby Mount Hood, you know, we set up a number of sites that were close to the tree line in this sort of more typical habitat, um, packed up and left for the fall and came back in the spring to discover that all of those high elevation sort of control sites uh, had burned in a massive fire. And so, you know, the first thing I did was sit down and have a good cry about how my thesis just went up in flames and how, you know, maybe I should drop out. But I eventually, with some encouragement, again, from some really excellent mentors, Um, in the field, came to appreciate that actually an interesting natural experiment had been created for me and that nobody had ever looked at how pikas recover from wildfires, even though the frequency and severity of wildfires across the West, you know, we're seeing it, it's increasing. um, And we're seeing a lot more of these big fires in habitats that are occupied by pikas. And so that was one of the things that we set out to do was to sort of look at how they recolonized. And we actually found that they came back faster than I would have expected. Um, Within three years of the fire, the all of the sites that we looked at had been occupied by pikas in at least one season of sampling. And in fact, some of the sites where the fire had burned at an intermediate severity actually had higher vegetation and higher pika abundances than those sites that were completely unburned, suggesting that sort of low intensity fire may actually benefit pikas in some capacity. So I know this isn't a world we want to picture, but if pikas weren't in our world, what do you think you would focus your research and studies on? (laughs) Oh, geez, I don't know. Um, Hyraxes. They're little animals that are closely related to elephants, but they look like a corgi or a pika. <laughs> I'm going to um, need to look into that more. I have not heard of that animal. Paul, it sounds interesting. I know. Google. Let's look it up. Yeah, I would need a lot of money. So if anybody's listening and wants to fund my Hyrax research, research just get in touch. <laughs> you know, before we let you go today, I think it's apparent you've had a passion for pikas for a while now, and you find them very interesting and fun to study. Why... Why should we care about pikas? Yeah, that's a great question. And the answer to that is there's some good reasons and there's some real reasons. Um, and, you know, one of the, I think, is a really real reason is is that 
they are really charismatic, adorable, wonderful animals that just make the world a better place through existence value. <laughs> um, and I, I, you know, encourage everybody, they, we have them here on the Grand Mesa. So uh, starting at about the base of Powderhorn and moving up from there, if you're at a rock slide or a boulder field, I encourage you to look for them. They are about the size and shape of a potato. They look sort of like a sphere with big round ears and they make little chirps that sound like and they, so you might mistake it from a, for a bird, and, um, but look closely for movement, and you might see a pika running around in the rocks. And so I think that they help connect people to nature in a way that, you know, they're just really charismatic and oftentimes overlooked. Um, other really important reasons, you know, about pikas and why we should care about them, they're oftentimes considered uh, an ecological indicator species. So because of their sensitivity to temperature, snowpack, and, and the different kinds of plant communities, um, if we see a problem with the pikas, then we know that there may be a broader problem in the ecosystem that's going to affect other species later. So there are lots of different species like this. Um, in our ecosystems that we can kind of monitor as a, as you could use the analogy of like a canary in the coal mine, that um, they can tell us something about the health of the broader ecosystem. I love that you mentioned their little noise because I, I absolutely love that. I've been hiking at high elevation and heard their little chirps. And it does, like when you're grinding over a mountain pass and you hear that little noise, you're like, oh, okay, yeah. yeah. You just gave me the little energy I needed to keep going. Yeah. Yep. They sound a little bit like a dog squeak toy, I think. And Pikachu, right? And Pikachu. That's, yes. That's where that's where he came from. Loosely based on a pika or maybe a squirrel. Sources differ. <laughs> we'll go with pika. I, I, I do, for sure. Thank you so much for being here today, Joe Varner. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the See Me Now podcast. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.